Hey, I'm Steph. I'm Alex. And this is Not Today. Feeling fantastic. Really, just doing great. Yeah. We're uh, going to go eat some sushi later. Hell yeah. Which I'm very excited about. It's been kind of a crazy week. We've been kind of uh, pre-recording some of these episodes. That way we can take a little bit of time off in July. And it's been a big week. It's been, it's a, been lot a lot. Of, a lot of work. A lot of recording. Yeah. But we do it for the people. Hell yeah. Yeah. So uh, what what is this story i get them all jumbled i don't know <laughs> this, what we're talking i don't know what we're talking about this week this one is another plane episode which we have been talking about i mean we only had one other but like quite a few planes in the past couple weeks uh yep. the, the last one was you know a plane crash into the ocean and then they had to survive and now this is a plane hijacking which only feels fantastic to me now that i'm thinking about it considering i'm going to be on a plane for six hours in like three days yeah and i was gonna ask when's your flight <laughs> like you know just a couple of days yeah the countdown begins well that's a big plane right y- yeah these are smaller planes no this is a big plane big plane problem yeah. the other one was a small propeller plane this that one is was... a gigantic cargo plane yeah but that was a long time ago yeah right so was this one. This was in 1994. Okay. So anyway, Dude, we don't just... know what they were doing in the 90s. Exactly. They were crazy back crazy. then. Crazy. They were probably drunk back then. They were crazy. Honestly, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, do you want to just get on in? Cause Let's we're... jump in. Got nothing else to talk about Feet but first. this, you know? Yep. All right. Our story takes place on April 7th, 1994. The Worldwide FedEx Center in Memphis, Tennessee, was servicing 171 countries and delivered over 2 million packages a day. So you could say they were working on a tight schedule. That day, FedEx Flight 705, which was a cargo plane, was preparing to depart to San Jose, California with a three-man crew. The three men who were scheduled to fly that day was 39-year-old flight engineer Andy Peterson, 49-year-old pilot Dave Sanders, and 42-year-old co-pilot James or Jim Tucker. But instead of it being just those three men as they anticipated, they were also going to be joined by 42-year-old Auburn Calloway as well. Calloway was also a flight engineer with FedEx and hoped to catch a ride on this flight for quote-unquote pressing personal reasons. Which was fine because employees are able to hitch free rides on these trips in what's called the jump seats. Okay. Since most of the plane is used for cargo, there are only two or three jump seats directly outside of the cockpit in the galley. So that's where he would be sitting for the duration of the flight. Flight engineer Andy Peterson was the first of the crew to board that day. He was surprised to find Auburn Calloway on board, but his first thought was... Scheduling had just gotten mixed up, and the fact that they now had two flight engineers on board was just a mistake. He asked Calloway if he'd be riding along with them, but he told Andy that he was just going to ride along in the jump seats, so he wouldn't be in the cockpit with them. Andy Peterson had been flying with FedEx for five years at that point, so he was no stranger to a cockpit. During his pre-flight check, he found something unusual. The breaker switch 
of the cockpit voice recorder, or the CVR, was in the off position. The CVR records all in-flight voice communication, making it a crucial tool for investigating air disasters, and no large commercial airliner is allowed to fly without one. He had never seen one turned off before and thought that this was definitely weird, so he flipped it back into the on position to reset it. Pilot Dave Sanders and co-pilot Jim Tucker were next aboard. As Jim boarded, he noticed that Callaway had a guitar case sitting off to his right, and he asked about it. They chatted for a moment, and he continued into the cockpit to go through their checks to prepare for their departure. Everything seemed completely normal. But what these three other men didn't know was that everything was not normal. Auburn Callaway had originally been scheduled to be the flight engineer of Flight 705 to San Jose. However, he and his crew had exceeded their flying hours by just one minute the previous day, and because of that, they had been replaced. But Callaway was determined to make that flight no matter what. Before takeoff, Andy Peterson had left the plane for a moment, and when he returned, he noticed that the CVR circuit breaker had popped out again. Or he thought, which was weird. But he reset it and decided that he would see if it would stay in instead of calling the maintenance. Because if it had popped out again and the maintenance people had to be called, that would be something that would definitely stop their departure completely, which, like I mentioned in the beginning, they are working on a very tight schedule, so that would have really sucked. Dave had been flying for FedEx for 20 years, and Jim had been flying with FedEx for 10 years and had even been an instructor. However, the two had just met that day. Dave did know Andy Peterson since the two of them had flown to Paris on one occasion, but this would be the first time that this three-man crew had all been together. And none of the crew members knew Calloway or his reasoning for being on the flight that day. Wait, wasn't he flying for, like, personal reasons? That's what he said. Oh, yeah. Okay. But it's a no, bit... Nobody knows what that means. Yeah, it's a bit more sinister than that. But yeah, they don't know. They just think that he's in the jump seats because sometimes people do that. They're like, you know, if you're a FedEx flyer, you can kind of just get free flights if you need them, which is cool. The crew was cleared for takeoff and the large FedEx express plane headed down the runway westward bound. The weather that day was clear, so if all went as planned, the men should have been back home in Memphis in only 10 hours. But in the galley, Callaway had a different idea for how that day would go. Auburn Callaway graduated from Stanford University in 1974. He became a top Navy flyer, and for the past five years, he had been a flight engineer for FedEx. He was highly intelligent, a driven person, he was married and had children, and from the outside, seemed as if he was living the true American dream. But like I said, Auburn Calloway had certain sinister plans for this flight that day, and he already had to make a few small adjustments to those plans. He had intended to use his flight bag that day, however, he had to take it somewhere to get repaired. So instead of using that, he decided that he could use a guitar case instead for his travel. That morning, he packed it with a bunch of hammers and a spear gun to take with him on the flight. A spear gun? Yes. Instead of, you know, clothes and a toiletry bag, he packed hammers and a spear gun. Right. He knew that as a company employee, he was very unlikely to be searched, and a guitar case seemed innocent enough. 
Okay, but like, why not just a gun? Well, I was gonna say because he can't go through a metal detector, but a spear is metal, huh? He has hammers. And hammers! I don't know. Oh, I do know. And we're gonna talk about it at the end. I was just thinking about, like, why not a gun, but I actually do explain that later on. We're gonna talk about, like, Auburn's reasoning at the end. Okay. Okay. FedEx Flight 705 was several minutes outside of Memphis, still ascending and passing through 5,800 meters. Jim Tucker was hand-flying the airplane using control wheel steering mode. Only a few feet away sat Auburn Calloway, who had grabbed his guitar case and opened it out of sight of the crew. To be successful in this attack, Calloway knew he had to be fast and strong with his execution which likely wouldn't be a problem for him since he was a former Navy pilot and a martial arts expert. Calloway's original plan was to attack and kill his own crew that he should have been flying this plane with, which would have only been two other people, and one of whom would have been a woman who was much smaller than him. So definitely an easier task. But since he had gotten bumped from that flight, he now had to take out a crew of three men. Oh my god, how lucky are those people? Seriously. Who got bumped and it was one minute over? Yeah. That was the reason? Only one minute. Yeah. Oh my god, this was so strange how things happen. I know. He got up from his jumper seat with two hammers and walked into the cockpit. Andy Peterson had seen Calloway entering the cockpit out of the corner of his eye, but he figured that he was just coming in to chat with them for a while. But that's when Calloway hit Andy hard on the back of the head twice before moving on to co-pilot Jim Tucker. He struck Jim hard on the left temple. Jim recalls this blinding pain. It was nothing he had ever experienced, and although he never lost full consciousness, he lost any useful form of consciousness for at least 45 seconds. According to neurosurgeon Dr. Morris Ray, a blow to the head like that will rattle the brain and shake it enough that it'll stop working momentarily, which will either present itself as unconsciousness or, like Jim described, semi-consciousness when you're aware of what's going on around you, but you can't do anything. That's so strange. So like, it's almost like your senses weren't taken out, but the rest of it was, like your perception. Yeah, you can't do anything. You can't move quickly or at all really and you can only see and kind of hear what's going on around you but in like a very foggy state yeah your brain has to load again yeah like has to restart reboot after being hit in the head he slumped back with his head tilted up so he could still see into auburn's eyes because his eyes were open even though he couldn't move or do anything This all happened so fast that Dave had enough time to try and turn around in his chair to fight back, but Calloway was still able to hit him over the head a few times with the hammers as well. He only had enough time to understand there was a threat, but he didn't have enough time to really process what was happening because it was so shocking and out of nowhere. A pilot attacking another pilot in flight is completely unheard of. All three men were stunned and injured, but didn't know the extent of each other's injuries. Calloway, at that point, had exited the cockpit to move on to Plan B, since all three men were still conscious. As he was going back out, Jim, Dave, and Andy were all trying to mobilize, but again, all of them have been hit really hard on the head with hammers multiple times, so you don't bounce back from that very quickly. 
But before any of them could really do anything, Calloway was already headed back into the cockpit, this time with a loaded spear gun pointed at them, which would be deadly if he shot them with. As he comes back in, he yells at them to sit down because he has a real gun and he will shoot them with it. Meanwhile, Andy was tucked into the back right corner of the cockpit right by the door where his station was, so he could see the spear of the spear gun pointing through the door as Calloway yelled at them. Because the spear sticks out about four or five inches out of the front of the gun, so he saw this little spear going into the cockpit like just a couple inches away from him. Each week, I speak to inspirational people. Each one of them has been on their own remarkable journey. They've all chosen to share their stories with one aim, that if people can relate and get comfort from it, if it can help someone, as one of my guests said, there's so much going on in the world. We should be focusing on helping one another and making each other better. Each one is a superhero not because they have special powers it's because in spite of what they've gone through they keep on going i find them remarkable please listen to chatholic and hear their stories wait is it like a rifle or is it like a handgun do you know how big it is yeah it's it's like a mm. oh it's more like the size of a submachine gun Kind of, but it's, it's a like spear between, gun. It's between a Yeah, it's like it's between like a, a handgun hand and a rifle. No, a handgun and like a shotgun in size, but like it's got a spear loaded into the front of it. What is it used for? I I'm don't know. I'm so confused. Fishing? Hunting? I guess fishing, yeah. yeah. Okay. It, it's a spear gun. I don't I'm know. I'm just trying to imagine like what's happening. Yeah, of course. Because like I, I was imagining this like five foot long thing because, like, I don't know, I would think a spear is, like, that long. No, it's just, like, it's a smaller spear that he has to, like, load in the front of the gun. And then when he shoots it, it'll obviously, like, propel out. Right. It will propel out. It will. So it's almost like a crossbow. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Well, not good. His head was pounding, and he had blood pouring down his face, meaning Andy. Yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised that none of them got straight up knocked out. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Hit in the head with a hammer. Multiple times. Two hammers. To the temple. Yeah, Jim Jim is not doing well. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna get into the specifics of each of their injuries, but yeah, Jim Jim got hit real hard in the temple, which rocked him. So Andy, who was still sitting at his flight engineer station, which is kind of in like the back right corner of the cockpit, was sitting there and his head was pounding and he had blood pouring down his face, but he figured the only thing he could do in that moment was grab the spear. So he lunged forward and grabbed onto the spear right behind the barbs and tried to hold onto it as tightly as he could. Meanwhile, as Andy grabbed onto the spear, Dave lunged forward at Calloway to try and subdue him with Andy. And Jim, who was still having trouble moving, grabbed onto the plane wheel or, you know, the, the steering mechanism of the plane. I didn't know. Oh, what... it's still manual. Yeah. And, I forgot about that. Yeah. And pulled back hard, which sent the plane going straight up into a sudden 15 degree climb. A 15 degree climb? So like they're going straight. They're going up. I, I thought you meant like 
Like well, straight up, not, like actually like 180 degree. degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not yet, but hold that thought. Ooh. Yeah. So he sent them into a sudden climb of 15 degrees, which threw the struggling men out of the cockpit and into the galley behind them. Jim said he realized in that moment that he had the greatest weapon of all, which was the aircraft itself. Jim had not only been a Navy pilot in his past, but also a fighter pilot combat instructor flying A-4s. And he was looking at the situation as an air combat maneuver situation. He knew he had to do something very abrupt that Callaway wasn't expecting. So after the 15 degree ascent, he took a hard turn left, which sent the three men in the back rolling over each other, still struggling for the weapons Callaway had in his hands. Jim had no idea if this was helping Andy and Dave to restrain Callaway, but it was all he could do. Meanwhile, Dave had pulled the spear out of the spear gun and all three men were holding on to it now to try and gain control. This entire flight continued with the men pinned to the left side of the plane and even though there were two against one, both of them were losing blood and strength quickly, you know, against Auburn who didn't have any real injuries yet. But that was when Jim rolled the plane about 140 degrees onto its back. <laughs> so, Holy shit. So the plane was literally upside down as these men were being thrown around in the galley, still fighting for their lives. And they're not buckled into anything. So like when the plane flips, they're now fighting on the ceiling. Like they're rolling around back there like crazy because Jim is just like fighter piloting this gigantic FedEx cargo plane. Oh my God. Could you imagine like seeing that as another plane? No. You're like, like, what? Do a flip. Like, literally. <laughs> Jim knew he couldn't completely roll the plane over because if he did, he wouldn't be able to see what he was doing out of the, you know, windshield of the plane because it wasn't made for these kinds of maneuvers. As you might imagine. So he could only see straight out in front of him and not above him. Commercial aircrafts like that are never meant to roll more than 60 degrees and he took it to 140 Jim has ice in the veins. Yeah. So the men in the back continued their fight on the ceiling of the aircraft, like I said, but Calloway freed one of his hands from the men and managed to strike Dave in the head with the hammer once again. Meanwhile, Jim decides that now he's going to bring the nose down, so the plane is literally going into a steep nosedive, which was a very risky move, but if anyone is going to do it and execute it, it was Jim. So pop off. <laughs> Wait, so they're almost upside down and now they're in a nosedive? Yes. Yeah. He took them, to, he, they were going up, then they did a 140 degree flip, and now they're going into a straight nosedive down. Wow. The G-force of the dive pushed the men onto the ceiling once again, because again, they're rolling around. The plane was going at a speed it was never meant to go at all. Jim was making demands of this aircraft it was never intended to do. DC-10s are never meant to be flown past 695 kilometers per hour, but they were over 800. No DC-10 in history has been flown so fast and survived. Jim said he had reached the maxed out level on the aircraft and couldn't go any faster, but he also knew that he was going faster than it said because, the, because of the sounds the aircraft was making. 
So he literally had maxed out the speed level, but he's like, I know I'm going faster than it says because the, the wind is insane. The plane was approaching supersonic speed. What's supersonic? I don't know, but it sounds like, cool. No, I, I think <laughs> it means when you're moving faster than sound. But oh, I don't actually yeah. know what, what that is. I don't know what the actual... Must be around 800 kilometers yeah, per hour. Yeah, somewhere around that. That's crazy. Yeah, and because of the airspeed, the airflow of the stabilizer became disrupted. The elevators, which are the little tail wings on the back of the plane, started to flutter up and down. And if that flutter increased, it may make them inoperable. Meaning Jim wouldn't be able to pull the plane out of the nosedive that he put them in dude (laughs) is this not insane yes this doesn't look like sanity to me right (laughs) i mean the man got hit in the head with a hammer yeah but he's he's a a navy pilot so we're gonna be doing some crazy shit a fighter plane or fighter pilot like he driving a cargo plane like a fighter pilot yes he knew that if he didn't pull the plane out of the nosedive soon it would fall apart because they were reaching a phenomenon known as mock tuck where the airplane is pitching over because the airspeed is increasing so much that the wind flow over the surface of the wings would be doing things it was never designed to do. And if you can hear that bird in the background, no, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so the wind is, like, what is it going to do? They were going so fast that Jim was worried that the the speed they were at would literally rip the plane apart. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's mock tuck. Yes. Okay. I believe so. If I'm wrong, someone correct me. But anyway, even scarier than that, the injury to Jim's left side of his head was starting to paralyze functions on the right side of his body. Oh my god. He realized that the plane was going at this incredible speed since the throttle had been left in their automatic climb setting from earlier, which meant that at that point, the DC-10 was in a vertical dive with the engines at nearly full power. Jim had to release his only usable hand, meaning his left one, from the yoke, or the steering wheel, to pull back on the throttles. Which reduced some of their speed, but they were not out of danger yet. Despite Jim's insane maneuvers, Callaway was gaining the upper hand in the back because the men were losing a lot of blood. Callaway managed to hit Dave a third time with the hammer, this time on the top of his head nearly rendering him unconscious. As he was starting to gray out, he sat back for a moment and thought about how they actually might lose this battle. Meanwhile, Jim had finally started to pull the plane out of this dive, but if he did it too quickly, it could have torn the back parts off the plane. Yeah, I mean, and basically snapped the plane in half, right? Yes. Somehow, Dave and Andy managed to pin Callaway down. As the G-force was starting to decrease as the plane started to level out, Dave saw the hammer in Calloway's hand and lunged forward to grab his hand and the hammer with both of his hands, and Andy was holding on to that spear for dear life. This was finally a turning point in their battle. The plane was back to stable, and the two men in the back are starting to get the upper hand, thankfully. All of this happened within like a minute or two of when the attack started, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be the longest minute of their lives, period. Absolutely. And finally, Jim had a chance to radio Memphis to report the emergency because nobody knew that anything wrong had happened at this point. Right, how could they? Yeah, of course. Yeah, what's the protocol call out for that? (laughs) Hijacker? I don't know. (laughs) He hijacked it. 
Air traffic controller Kent Fleshman and his trainee received Jim's emergency request. He told them that they'd been wounded in an attempt to take over the plane, and he asked permission to come back to Memphis. And he also told them to get an ambulance ready and to alert the airport to what was going on. Fleshman knew that he had to get Jim to descend below 3,000 meters because if the hijacker had a gun, at that altitude, a bullet in the... A bullet hole in the fuselage or the main body of the aircraft could cause explosive decompression, which is basically decompression which occurs at such a rapid rate that your lungs can basically like collapse, essentially. Yeah. And the airplane explodes pretty much. Kind of, yeah, I think. A little bit. A little bit. Jim had heard the fight start to increase again in the galley and decided to maneuver the plane again to throw the men to the other side of the galley. Meanwhile, he was still talking to air traffic control and told them that he would need armed intervention on the ground, which Fleshman knows is of the most serious requests a pilot can make, because it means that they want armed officials to storm the plane upon landing, so he has to, so he has to alert the Memphis police. Paul Candelino, who was a 44-year-old veteran air traffic controller, was alerted to what was going on and spotted Flight 705 on his radar screen and noticed that the plane was headed away from the airport that they had requested to land at, which led him to believe that the hijacker had seized the plane. That wasn't the case, though. That wasn't the case, though. Jim was still in control of the aircraft, but absolutely pushing it to its limits because at that point, he had thrown the plane to the other side, flipping it again. And he kept trying to keep his maneuvers as unpredictable as possible, that way Auburn Calloway could never get the upper hand. He could still hear the fight going on in the back, and had no idea who was winning and who was losing, but he had to just keep flying the plane in a way that he thought would help. That was the first time that he actually had a moment to even think about what was actually going on back there, and that there was a possibility that Calloway was winning. This was three and a half minutes after the attack started. In the back, Dave and Andy had Calloway pinned again, and Dave had gotten control of the hammer, so he hit Calloway with the full intent to disable him. Even though he himself was injured, he was angry and fighting for his and his crew's lives. But even in that state, he said he didn't want to kill Calloway. He just wanted to hurt him bad enough that he couldn't fight back anymore. Dave hit him with all of his strength, and he and Andy were able to momentarily subdue Calloway. And that's when Dave yelled to Jim to come back there and help them, but he was the only one flying the plane. Jim was still trying to communicate with air traffic control, but Dave was yelling, just put it on autopilot and come back here. (laughs) Come on, dude. (laughs) We need some help. Seriously. Gotta fucking handcuff this lunatic. If they had handcuffs, yeah. Jim said that that was an insane request because he was the only one up there, and for him to go back there, he'd have to stand up. And at that point, he wasn't sure that he could even do that. Jim Tucker's skull had been fractured, and only one side of his body was functioning. He managed to put the plane into autopilot and struggled out of his seat to go help the two in the back. But as he started to pull himself up, an alarm went off signaling that the plane's gyros, I think it's how it's pronounced, hadn't been stabilized sufficiently for the autopilot to fully take over. But he then did something to reset it or reflip the switch and was able to engage autopilot. 
I believe. This part was a little bit unclear, but also he how could he leave the plane without it actually being an autopilot? Yeah. I'm sure that something was a little off after like literally going into a nosedive and right. breaking the speed barrier. Exactly. Paul Catalino tried to call and get radio contact with Flight 705, but there was no response. He had seen on his radar that the plane had turned to the north, then west, and then finally southwest, meaning they were still headed away from the airport, and he had no idea what was happening on the plane. When Jim got back to the galley, he couldn't believe what he was looking at. All three men were completely covered in blood. Auburn Calloway was on his back with the two men still over him, pinning him down. There were papers everywhere, the jump seats had been torn apart, there were bloody footprints on the ceiling, coats had come out of the closets, it was a complete disaster. Dave had disarmed Calloway and handed the spear to Jim to keep Calloway from getting up. Dave told Jim to keep Calloway contained while he went to the front to fly the plane. He's like, man, I gotta tap out, like, you gotta take over. (laughs) Because after all... I don't like this job. Yeah, right. Well, after all, he was the pilot and Jim was the co-pilot and in an emergency situation it's usually the pilot who would fly the plane and you know not the co-pilot. Before Dave went back into the cockpit Jim kicked the hammers toward him and told him to take them that way they were as far away from Callaway as possible. When Dave got to the front he was still in a daze from the fight. He didn't know which way they were flying the condition of the airplane but it appeared to be flying okay. He was bleeding excessively from his head and couldn't see out of his left eye. But he believed the fight was over since he hit Calloway in the head four times with a 20-ounce framing hammer, as hard as he could swing it. Calloway had stopped fighting and looked as if he were severely injured. But in the back, Jim, who was holding the spear and pointing it at Calloway, couldn't tell if his hands were still working. The blows to his head had caused blood clots on his brain and damaged his sense of touch. That's when Calloway started screaming for the two men to let him up because he, quote unquote, won't fight anymore. Right. Oh my God. I have a story like this. You have a story like this? Well, somebody who had said that <laughs> oh. after like going nuclear, yeah, which is he's just done, right? Yeah. But I don't know if I've told this before, but a quick aside... I went to a Taco Bell once and literally a guy jumped over the counter and was trying to strangle the cashier. What? And then my dad and friend, really my friend's dad, like went after him and threw him to the ground and then pinned him. And then my dad jumped in and like helped him. Yeah. And the guy kept saying this. He's like, let me up, man. I won't fight. And they're like, no, 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 dumb, dumb. We're not going to let you up. You lost that right. When you tried to strangle the cashier. Jeez. So, I mean, I guess it's like, why not try? But yeah, this is stupid. Like, oh you're, it's not happening. Imagine you're like 17 years old. It's like, I was, you're just at 14. your job. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm talking about the oh, cashier. The cashier? Like, oh, yeah. You just definitely like was job. not. Yeah, it was not paid enough. God, no. Damn. Oh, you want to know what it was over? Yeah. Cinnamon twist. Of course. They, they it left was. out a cinnamon twist in oh. the drive thru. Are you shitting me? No. That's insane. He was hammered. But, Ye- yeah. And he was driving? Uh-oh. Yeah, well, that's not bad. a stand-up guy. No, clearly not. Okay, well, Auburn Calloway was trying the same tactic. He's like, <laughs> I promise, guys, I won't fight. And they're like, dude, shut up. Like, <laughs> but he started pushing on them with all of his force. It was a struggle for everyone because they were all pretty badly injured at this point. 
Dave, who was safely back in the driver's seat, knew he needed to get the plane on the ground ASAP. He checked back in with Memphis and they told him he was cleared to land with assistance that would meet him on the runway. But without his glasses and with blood in his eyes, Dave thought they were headed back toward the airport. When in reality, they were still headed southwest away from Memphis at over 550 kilometers per hour. Well, are are they telling him to turn around? I don't think so. I don't know if they had... (laughs) I don't know. They're like... He's got it. Or it's hijacked. He'll figure it out. Like, we don't want to disturb it. Yeah, don't, don't, don't disturb them. Okay, so Catalino, back in air traffic control, wanted to check in with the pilot and tell him he was going the wrong way. So, yes. But didn't want to say it out loud if it was on purpose. Because he still wasn't quite sure what was going on in the aircraft with this hijacker. But he ended up asking if he could turn toward the airport. So Dave said yes, he could and asked for the directions and then took the plane out of autopilot and turned them back toward Memphis. So now they are officially flying back toward the airport. Nice. But they weren't out of danger because the aircraft was more than 16,000 kilos over the recommended landing weight. It had more than 38,000 kilos of fuel still in its tanks, which I didn't even know that you needed to like use up a certain amount of fuel in the flight in order to be like a safe weight to land. What? Yeah, I had no idea that that was a thing. Wait, so if you have a problem in the first 10 minutes, you can't land? I'm sure you can, but it's like safer to land when it's lighter, which makes sense, but I never thought about it. I guess so, but why would you not build a plane that can land at full fuel weight or at least 90% or something? You know, you should call them up. Just Boeing's phone number? Yeah. just (laughs) Like Boeing. Can I speak to your manager, please? <laughs> Who builds the planes here? Yeah. Who are you? Yeah, I run a podcast. I'm a profitable small business owner, Alex Hunt. <laughs> right. <laughs> In most emergency landing situations, there's time and opportunity to dump any excess fuel, but the switches and levers he needed to do that were too far away from him to do it alone. Oh, okay. So this is what they do. Yes, they, they dump it. They just dump. Okay, yeah. this makes sense. So you, you won't call the manager? No, I think I'll... I probably still will. You'll let it slide this time. I'll see how far I can get. Okay. But that would have been a job for Andy, a.k.a. the flight engineer, but Andy was a little busy in the back. Yeah, he's a little occupied. Which meant that if Dave wanted to flip those switches, he would have to get up out of his seat and walk across the cockpit to do it. And that would be impossible for him to do while he was attempting to fly the plane. In the galley, Auburn Calloway still hadn't given up his fight. He managed to pull himself with both Andy and Jim on top of him toward the jump seats, and his plan was to get enough leverage from the seat to get himself back onto his feet, which would give him the advantage again. Yeah, let me up. I won't fight. (laughs) Yeah. He was doing everything he could to get back up. He even started using his thumbs to gouge out Jim's eyes. He was fighting dirty. Yeah, I think he needs another hammer. It's hammer time. Is that the episode title? Oh, God, that is it. (laughs) It's hammer time. Oh, God. (laughs) Perfect. Now it was a fight against the clock because Jim knew that they would not be able to keep him down with how badly they had been injured. One-on-one, they had no chance with him because Calloway was getting stronger and the two of them were only getting weaker. As the plane was approaching 7,000 feet, Dave heard the fight start up again and get as violent and as loud as it was when he was back there. 
It got so loud and violent that he decided he needed to level out the plane again, turn on autopilot, and go help Jim and Andy kill Calloway. So now he's like, alright, I didn't want to kill him before, but I'm gonna kill him now because we cannot let him win. But as Dave got out of his seat to go help, Jim told him he believed they had him under control again. Dave asked, are you sure? And he said yes. So Dave went back to his seat, which is very confident coming from Jim, who can't use the right side of his body. (laughs) He's like, we got it. (laughs) He continued to descend and told the air traffic control that the situation was sort of under control when they asked for an update. Sure. And then Dave was told that he was cleared to land. But this brought yet another problem. Because when he got out of his seat, it delayed his descent, meaning he was way over the normal approach speed. He was still too high and too fast, which meant he wouldn't be able to land the plane on runway niner like he was told to do. Dave had to tell air traffic control that he was going to land on runway 36 left since it was longer. But this runway was perpendicular to the direction he was flying, so to land there, he would have to make a bunch of maneuvers to do it. Which would be reasonable for a fighter jet, but not for a large overloaded aircraft with an injured pilot. He'd have to turn 90 degrees to the right, fly parallel to the runway, and then make a tight 180 degree turn onto the runway. Does that make sense? It's a lot of moves. A lot of moves. And they still got full fuel? Mm hmm. It's like a thick plane. Thick plane. Big okay. and a honker of a plane. And he's gonna, like, can the plane handle that? Can the plane handle being flipped 140 degrees? I don't know, but let's find out. Let's try it again. Roll that (laughs) dice. Right. He was given warnings about how difficult this landing would be, but he had to ignore them and push the plane beyond its normal operating limits again. He wanted to slow the plane down so they'd at least land at a reasonable speed, but he was still coming in too fast. What, can't they like flip up the things that they flip up when they land? You should call them. Slow the plane down? (laughs) I'm just asking basic questions <laughs> no, here. No, I know. Is I, anyone else wondering this? I don't have the answer because I don't, I'm not a pilot, but. He, but why not? Because I never are you not a pilot? to flight school. Figure it out. Okay. Um, well, <laughs> Dave said he wouldn't be able to slow it down enough. So I'm going to trust Dave. Okay. Because he's a pilot of many years. <laughs> because he's a pilot. Not me. All right, fine. Okay. In the cockpit, he wanted to slow down the plane so that he could land at a reasonable speed, like I said, but he was still coming in too fast. And in the cockpit, it was just alarm after alarm after alarm going off, trying to warn him that he was flying dangerously, but there was nothing he could do. The runway Dave was trying to land on was 2,800 meters long, and typically a DC-10 only needs 1,900 meters to stop, but Flight 705 was still so heavy that this runway still may not have been long enough. In Dude, the... you gotta drop the fuel, buddy. He couldn't. Put it on autopilot again, right? Well, he had to descend. They needed to get back. Oh, shit, they don't have time. He doesn't have time. That's what I'm saying. Damn. I know. In the back, the three were still fighting, of course. But at that point, Andy was able to grab onto the last hammer that was in the galley, but he was too weak to use it. So, that sucks. I <laughs> just imagine him, like tapping him on the head with it uh, uh, <laughs> stop it meanwhile jim was holding on to callaway in a bear hug on the ground and was screaming you gotta hit him andy you gotta hit him as they approached the runway 
Dave can only hope he won't explode the tires upon landing and crash completely. But somehow, all ten tires withstood the landing impact and Captain David Saunders landed the plane with only 300 meters of runway to spare. Plenty. It's a whole, what? 300 meters. It's like five football fields. (laughs) That's a whole 300 meters. Yeah. He did it. I mean. He did the damn thing. He really did that, you know? (laughs) That was a dumb thing to say. (laughs) He really did that. As Dave made it to the galley, he sees Jim and Andy almost unconscious trying to keep Calloway on the ground. He released the door, which sent an inflatable slide down to the ground. There is a talcum powder on the slide, which keeps it from sticking on itself if it needs to be deployed, but that made it so slick that the emergency people on the ground couldn't get into the plane using it, so they had to use a ladder. (laughs) I could just imagine watching them try to swim up and then... Falling down, sliding down. The first emergency person on board asked Dave who the bad guy was. (laughs) And he looks down to see Calloway pinned by Jim and Andy. Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, I guess they don't know if it's like two against two or... Yeah, exactly. Dave tells him he needs handcuffs because he is still very dangerous. So someone throws him up a pair. He handcuffs Calloway and tells Dave to stand on the chain in the middle of the cuffs to keep him down as he examined Andy, who was looking really bad. He had such massive blood loss that Andy barely had a pulse at this point. And the initial blow to the side of Jim's head in his temple had sent bone chips into his brain. Oh my god. So both of them were really badly injured. And... Andy was the first crew member to leave the plane, followed by Jim, both of which were in critical condition. The two were rushed to the regional medical center at Memphis. Dave was able to share an ambulance with Jim, and it was only during that ride that he realized the extent and severity of his co-pilot's injuries. When they reached the hospital, Jim was rushed inside on a stretcher while Dave was able to walk in. Calloway, who was restrained and under guard, was also taken to the same emergency facility. This is crazy to me because when stuff like this happens, they'll still rush the criminal to the hospital. Yeah. Because you have to give them care. Of course. But it's the same hospital. Yeah. Like this, it's going to be the closest one. I wouldn't be safe or wouldn't feel safe. I know. I mean, I'm sure that they got them guarded, but it's just crazy that like you're being treated to save your life. This guy's the cause of it, and he's being treated down the hall in room nine. Yeah. You know? I know. But, you know, gotta save his life, but too. you know, right? Yeah. But the question still remained of why did Auburn Calloway attack the crew of Flight 705? Calloway was divorced in 1990, but still tried to support his ex-wife and their two kids, and he wanted to secure their financial future. He was very interested in giving his kids a better life than he had growing up. As investigators searched Calloway's things on the plane, the story continued to make more and more sense. They found a letter to Calloway's estranged wife. They learned that by April 7, 1994, Calloway was thinking his career was over. At that point, his life had been one disappointment after the other. His failed marriage, his obsession with sending his two kids to Stanford, the fact that he was a brilliant pilot who ended up as an engineer on a cargo plane, and now maybe even that was all about to go. Because because he had gone over his flight time by like a minute, he he also had been in like a couple of other 
issues with the airline, so he was worried that they were going to fire him completely. Oh, well, I'm, I don't know. Work harder, go find figure another, out. figure out another <laughs> job, man. It seems yeah. like you're smart enough to do it. Well, he definitely was, but he was like, flying is my life, and if I can't be a pilot, then nobody can. Like, he freaked out. So, go find a pilot job, dude. The following day on April 8th, he was supposed to attend a FedEx hearing about falsified information that he had given the company. Callaway had overestimated the number of hours of flight experience he had and was scared that he would be fired because of that. At 42, his professional life could have been finished. So to ensure he'd leave his children well off and to escape the pain of his life, he came up with the plan to die in a quote-unquote accident. That way his family could cash in on his life insurance money. He cashed in all the funds he could lay his hands on and sent a total of $54,000 to his ex-wife. But his life insurance was worth about $2.5 million if he died in a work-related accident which is why he had such strange weapons. He knew that if he had a bomb or a gun, they could leave traces at the scene of the crash. But if investigators found a spear gun or hammers, it would be very difficult to tie them to an attack on the crew. It would have been impossible to tell the difference between injuries a hammer would have made versus the injuries you would sustain in a plane crash. So, Yeah, I was just about to ask... There's like a perfectly hammer-sized hole in your skull. Well, probably you, it could have been sense. caused still. It could have been. I mean, if think about a plane crash, like you're you probably just like shatter your body, you know. Right. So there's no way to distinguish between blunt force trauma from a hammer or blunt force trauma from hitting the ground, like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Auburn had spent the week leading up to this flight preparing to die and getting his affairs in order. He even went to a lawyer to change his will, but he knew the only way it would look like an accident was to switch off the cockpit voice recorder so there was no recording of what was said on the flight. So obviously he was the reason the CVR had been shut off. When Andy had switched it back on, it was a minor setback, but Callaway knew that he'd only have to wait 30 minutes until the recording time on the tape was full, and then any incriminating recording would have been gone forever. Had Calloway actually gotten control of the aircraft, he could have crashed the plane with over 38,000 kilos of fuel on board into any site, including the FedEx headquarters, crippling his employer and killing a large number of workers on the ground, which would have been the ultimate revenge. If that happened, FedEx may have never known why this plane crashed into their headquarters. After 9-11, their security had ramped up significantly, and their pilots and crew were of the most highly checked and monitored people in the world. So this was completely unexpected. Auburn Calloway was convicted of attempted aircraft piracy, an offense that carried a minimum of 20 years in prison and a maximum of life in prison. Calloway pleaded temporary insanity at his trial, but the jury didn't believe him and found him guilty. So on August 11th, 1995, he was sentenced to life imprisonment with no chance of parole. Experts and doctors believe that the fact that this crew was able to do what they did is absolutely incredible. Injuries to the head with a hammer are no joke, as I'm sure you can imagine. After the attack, Jim was walking around for a year and a half with almost a quarter of his skull missing. Wow. It took two and a half years to recover because he had to learn how to walk and talk all over again. He had to have three major operations. 
doctors were able to give Jim a hard tissue replacement that was basically an artificial replacement piece of skull that fit over that hole. So it was able to be covered, but like for a good amount of time, he just had a hole in his skull, like a baby with a soft spot. Wow. Yeah. Wait, so did they actually put like new bone in there? No. It's like an artificial piece that they put over the skull that is hard like his skull, but isn't actually skull. Right, they give him a little Lego. Exactly, a piece, a puzzle piece, if you will. Okay, because I can't remember for what case, but do you remember there was one where something, I mean, not this, but similar injury happened where there was a skull part missing and they took that part of the skull and like put it in their stomach. And then it oh, and then grew. like regenerated, right? Yeah. I don't remember what that is either, but yes, I do remember talking about that. It was like insane. It was like stomach regen of the skull. Super cool. But no, this was um, artificial. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it fits a lot better. Yeah. On May 26, 1994, the crew of Flight 705 was awarded the Pilots Association Gold Medal Award for Heroism, the highest award a civilian pilot can receive. But because of the extent of their injuries, none of the crew has ever been certified as medically fit to fly commercially again. Jim Tucker always thought he'd fly commercially his whole life, but he now has to be on seizure medication, and the only way for him to fly without anyone with him is to be off of that medication. So he'll never be able to do that again. That makes no sense. So he's taking medicine so that he doesn't have seizures, but the medicine prevents him from flying? Yeah, like the fact that he has to be on that medication is handicap enough for him not to be able to fly safely. Yeah, damn, the side effects must be pretty gnarly then. Maybe, yeah. Andy Peterson and Dave Sanders also, of course, miss flying, but they also cherish the fact that they are alive and still able to be with their families. So all three of these pilots are very sad that this is the way their lives have happened, the tragedy that they've had to live through, but also they feel very lucky and fortunate that they are still alive today and do get to spend the rest of their lives with their loved ones so it's you know they they're looking at the bright side which is really good yeah glass half full i mean you definitely could have been easily dead easily but that is the story of flight 705 that's insane isn't that crazy that they were doing like fighter jet maneuvers like both of them both jim and dave i mean jim obviously did the more insane ones like flipping the plane completely on its back and then like doing a nosedive and then pulling it out of it like that's insane but then dave had to do that maneuver where he like completely turned 90 degrees and then did like a a 180 degree turn as well to land and then hope to god that he was able to yeah stop on that runway right yeah no well i'm sure that they got a new sense of the limits of the cargo planes hell yeah i still can't believe i mean they record everything on these flights with those black boxes, right? Or some mm-hmm. mechanism like that. But I guess they don't actually know how fast the plane went because it went out of bounds of like what could be measured. Right. So that's insane. Mm-hmm. Like I wonder how fast it actually went. I don't know. But glad it didn't snap in half and that they can all be with their families even though they can't fly. I mean, yeah. that really sucks, but you know. But there are definitely worse things. True. So... I don't know. I just, I still can't understand like why, I mean, I know that losing your job is earth shattering, but I don't think it would have been something that he couldn't come back from. No. I mean, all three of them said that they're living happily with their families. It's you just know. Callaway. Oh, Callaway. Yeah. Cause like the whole reason he did this is he thought his career was going to be over and he wouldn't be able to support his family. Well, if he, he was in trouble for falsifying reports. 
So if he got in trouble for that and fired, there's a good chance that he never would be hired at another, like, piloting position. Oh. Because he was lying and, like, falsifying things. Well. So he thought his life was over. And also he was at a very low point in his life in general. Like, he had been divorced, a really nasty divorce. His he I think he was kind of, like, not really seeing his kids or his wife and, like, still trying his hardest to support them. So he was just in a really, really dark place and obviously was very mentally ill and so it was just like a terrible mixture of things that caused him to break essentially you know wow okay well i guess my point doesn't stand yeah so what i'm trying to say is is you're an idiot uh that's valid (laughs) (laughs) good um anyway what's your good thing (laughs) sometimes um yeah my good thing is that we're gonna go eat some good sushi tonight hell yeah sometimes it's just as simple as that it is yeah i was gonna say the same thing but i think i'm gonna make my good thing that it's not only just going to eat sushi but it it is a conveyor belt of sushi yes that's fun i've never done that before and i've always wanted to so i'm excited that you found this place to go and do a conveyor belt yeah i know but i feel like this is do they do this in japan like the conveyor belt (laughs) i don't know i feel like this is kind of an american thing where it's just like you put your open your mouth at the end of a belt and it just like food flows in you when know? you put it like that i can i can see that being just uh an america thing but also i feel like they have never... they have like fun things like that over there they have like really fun like themed <laughs> restaurants and like like i don't know we'll have to look it up i, but... I bet they have a conveyor belt sushi i mean it's right? such a i mean that'd but be stupid I, my to point know. is is i is it like originally from Japan oh, or is no it like an, an American addition to that cuisine? Cause I just, <laughs> it would make sense to me. Sure. That makes sense. But Hey, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. I mean like, and why wouldn't you want that? You could just take any food you want. I can't wait. I'm so lit. I love a buffet. Hell yeah. Anyways. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to check out all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at not to the underscore podcast. If you would like bonus, exclusive, ad-free, extra content, and some fun community, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story that you would like to share with us, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is nottodaypodcast and a Twitter that is nottodaypodcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three. Because that makes sense. Because it makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.